The book of Daniel has captured much attention in recent days, and sadly I'm not referring to the biblical book, but as you have perhaps heard, and I trust haven't even seen, the television sitcom that has come out of the family of an Episcopalian priest who is named Daniel. And to put it mildly, Daniel's home is in an utter mess. One of his sons is sleeping with the bishop's daughter. His other son sleeps with men. His, other, his daughter is arrested for dealing drugs, and Daniel fails at every turn to manage his home well, although he seeks to give guidance to a church that is ostensibly Christian. Well, this show is certainly a direct assault against the Christian faith, and it pointedly blasphemes the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does bring to light the extreme challenge to maintain a functional home as well as the utter necessity to do so. The relationship between parents and children is not an easy one to get right. And when that relationship gets off base, a family has a singular capacity to dishonor God and to suffer the consequences. And children, I say to you in particular today that you play a vital role in this relationship. Your parents are called by God to set the agenda. They are called by God to lead the home in godly paths. But you also have a God-given responsibility to relate to your family, to your parents, in a God-honoring manner. And how you follow through is of utmost importance to your family. It is of utmost importance to your experience of the joy of God as a family. And as we consider God's word to children this morning, I'd like us to start by considering the account of two Israelite families. And I think of putting these two scenes together, it gives us an understanding, some moorings on which to draw from the conclusions and the exhortations that the New Testament brings to children. But I invite you first to 1 Samuel chapter 2. As we come to this second chapter of 1 Samuel, we are in the time toward the end of the era of the judges of Israel. It is not a morally strong time for Israel. And Eli is serving as the chief priest at the tabernacle in Shiloh. If we could put it in today's terms, which we can't ideally, but he was basically a pastor. He was a shepherd of God's people. He was a priest of God to meet the people of God there at this tabernacle of Shiloh. This was the place where people indeed met with God. God's presence was there behind the veil and hovering over the Ark of the Covenant. And Eli was the man at the gate. He was the one who guarded the tabernacle area. He was the one who oversaw its administration of the worship of God. And he shared these duties, as Scripture would indicate, with his sons, who were also priests. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we begin at verse 12 to read about the relationship between Eli and his sons. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. The Hebrew reads that they were sons of Belial who did not know God. These young men were worship leaders, but they had no relationship to God. They served Him every day, but they didn't know Him. 
And in verses 13 through 16, there is an illustration of the godlessness of these men as they led in the worship of Israel. As we would go to Leviticus 7, 23 and 28 through 34, we find their stipulations for how the priests were to receive the sacrifices of the people of God. They are coming with these sacrifices to worship the Lord. It costs them money. It costs them attention. And they come specifically here to this place to meet with God. And when the people come, God says to the priest, here are the stipulations for how you will receive their offerings. And Eli's sons know God's will. They know his law. They know the ritual requirements. But they chose for selfish reasons, to simply disregard what God said. And God responds to their sin at verse 17 of this chapter. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offerings with contempt. That is, they were taking pieces of offerings and and the fat of the offerings and were consuming it for themselves in a way that God did not permit in His law. And God is angered by their sin. They treat the Lord's offering with contempt. But their sinful appetites extended sadly beyond food, and they also violated God's moral law by having sex with women at the tabernacle. Verse 22, Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all of Israel, that is, intimidating people as they came to worship, taking offerings that were not theirs, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They did not know God, but in a fleshly way they knew the women who assembled there to worship, quote, unquote. And in that pagan setting, this was not really unusual. For there to be ritual prostitution at a shrine was part of the culture that surrounded Israel. This was just part of the deal. It was very natural to them. But God placed a higher moral call upon His children. And what these men did was grievous in God's sight. And their father Eli was deeply concerned for his sons. And he confronts his sons. Eventually there he says at verse 23, he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among God's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Eli is deeply concerned that these men may be on the verge of committing a sin of high treason against God himself. Verse 25 in the middle of the verse, If a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But his sons... However, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. The point is not that God held an irrational grudge against them and just wanted to slay them. The point is that in the sovereign plan of God and His providential leading in their lives, their high-handed sin against Him would result in discipline and death. God's wrath raged against these men. 
Looking at that horrifying scene, by the way, we won't take the time to do it today, but it's very interesting how the text intersperses references to Samuel and to his relationship with the Lord and indeed to his relationship to Eli. But we look at this very tragic scene which will not end well at all. It will end in a in dishonoring day for the name of God and in the death of these two sons of Eli. But we look at their father confronting them and they're resisting his will and his counsel. And we turn then to Luke chapter 2 and consider a very different scene. Let's contrast these two accounts. Luke chapter 2 beginning at, toward the end of the chapter, but let me just make a few comments. At first, at age 12 or 13, a Jewish boy became a son of the law. And after a year of semi-probation, he was treated legally as an adult. If he could handle it, he was treated as a, an adult. This 12th year was the final year of intense education, after which the boy had to earn his own living. He would still be living in his father's home, but he would have to go out and make his way in the world and to find uh, employment. So Jesus now, as we come to this place, is really a man. He's 12 years of age, but he's considered a son of the law. He is a man. A man, and he must pursue then his life's work. Now in this culture, and it's been this way for the vast uh, length of human history. It's not this way in our country at this time, but it, for, for many stretches of generations and civilizations, you were to do what your father did. That was sort of your obligation. Your father had spent his whole life learning how to deal with putting shoes on horses or something like that, and you learned from him, and you learned all of his uh, tricks to the trade and how he did it and you had something of a moral obligation to do the same job and to serve your community by doing the best you could at whatever job your father did. This is very much the way that it was in Israel at this time. But Jesus is at this very crucial point in his life, and we pick up the text of Luke chapter 2 at verse 41, and learn that every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Luke 2 and verse 41. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. Now the tabernacle where Eli served long ago been moved from Shiloh and a temple has been built now on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And to this temple, Jesus of Nazareth traveled with his parents to observe the religious festival of Passover. Verse 43, after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Traveling with this large band of Passover pilgrims, often the children, would, as they were responsible, would intersperse with other children and other families, and they would just travel walking in this massive group of people. You can imagine what would happen, those of you that were at camp uh, yesterday, if, if that whole group had decided to take a 60-mile walk. We would mix up with one another and probably not pay a whole lot of attention to your children, particularly when they're 12 and particularly when they've never sinned a day in their life. You really don't worry about the kid. But they get to stop that night on their journey home to sleep and Jesus is nowhere to be found. 
That's the place where families come back together and sleep together in this company of people under the stars, and they're looking for Jesus, and he's not there. And the only conclusion is that he's somewhere along the way, and they make this very difficult journey then back to Jerusalem. It had to be a traumatic event. We pick up the text at verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. Now, it only took one day to get where they were, and a day to get back, and they've been looking now for three days. They find him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. The Greek indicates that they had suffered great mental anguish in their constant search for their son. The rabbis are amazed at his learning. Joseph and Mary are astonished at his behavior. And we find then that Jesus himself is surprised at verse 49. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? We could sit on that verse for a long time. There is an amazing commingling together of humanity and deity in all of this, of the maturing of a young mind that is truly human and of his prerogatives as God. We can't rest long on it other than to say that Jesus was simply obeying his heavenly Father. That's how he saw it. Surely they would understand the importance of his mission. He was doing his Father's job. He was now a son of the law. It was time for him now to find his life's work. And he had found his work. He was here in his Father's house doing his Father's business. What else would you expect him to do? But verse 50, they did not understand what he was saying to them. They did not understand. By all rights, Joseph and Mary should have understood. They remembered that Jesus was miraculously conceived. They remembered the angelic prophecies concerning his messianic mission and his work of salvation that God had called him to perform. They remembered these things. Jesus' parents should have understood what he was up to, but they simply did not get it. As I said, Israeli sons were generally expected to follow their father's occupation, and as far as Joseph was concerned, that's exactly what Jesus was going to do. He was going to follow Joseph home and work with wood. If you have to put it this way, if we had to, and, and I think it's in one sense of the term it's right, Jesus was right and his parents were wrong. Their will for Jesus was not immoral, but they were dead wrong. Jesus didn't sin here. He was doing his Father's will, and they were against it. Now we have to be cautious there and not put it in too stark of terms, as there's much going on in the interaction between the two. But I think we can say this. They were wrong. And Jesus is now faced with an excruciating decision. He is the Son of God. This is His Father's house. He longs with all of His heart to pursue His calling. And He is coming to understand that that calling is to rule here over the earth. 
to rule in righteousness over the earth and to begin that work now. He's ready. And let me say, children, directly to you, you will never want anything in this life more passionately than Jesus wanted to stay at Jerusalem that day. You're never going to want any toy. You're never going to want any privilege. You're never going to want anything more than Jesus wanted to stay right there. We cannot begin to imagine how excited Jesus was to discuss God's truth at the temple. He was a teacher at heart. He loved God's Word. His theological juices were flowing as he astounded the greatest minds in Israel there at the temple. He was alive. He loved God's will and he wanted to perform it and would show that to the end of his life that he wanted God's will more than he wanted life itself. And here he was in Jerusalem doing what was in the depths of his heart to do what he so wanted To leave Jerusalem now would rip him away from the fountainhead of theological learning in Jerusalem and it would consign him to the cultural backwaters of Galilee. I want to stop on that thought for a moment. Let's try to understand it just a little better from our own world. Think of a young woman, 18 years of age, and she is unbelievably good at playing piano. In fact, she wins a trip to New York City. She's invited to play at a great concert hall, and she holds everybody mesmerized by her abilities on the piano. And immediately after the concert, someone comes up to her and says, you don't know me, but I'm such and such a professor, such and such a place, and I want to offer you a full-ride scholarship to study music here in New York City. I think you can really go places. And as she's hearing this news and as she's soaking in the applause of the crowd, her mom and dad come up to her and said, well, we'll have none of that. Our daughter has a place in our family lumberyard and she will be following us back home to South Dakota. Can you imagine the feeling in that girl's heart just at that moment? Just get a little sense of it. Or to change the picture, there's a young man who's a star athlete a basketball player who's playing in a gym in a large city and some coach of a local university notices his abilities and says, would you please come with me? And he takes him to this Division I university basketball program which is having a practice that afternoon in the neighboring gym and he has him try out with the team and he dominates the practice. And it's dawning on this kid how good he really is. And the coach has fallen all over him and offers him in that moment a scholarship, a full-ride scholarship. In fact, says, here's your jersey. We want you to play for our team. If you'll just enroll this afternoon and we can work that out for you, we want you to play and we're going to be playing a major basketball power next Saturday night where you need to be on our team. And the young man calls his parents and they say to him, listen, you leave there right now You've got a job at the steel mill. That's where you're supposed to be, and we want you to come home. You can combine these two scenarios, just getting a little feel of it, and multiply it a thousand times over, and we begin to just scratch the surface of how devastating it was to Jesus to have to go home to Nazareth. His parents were wrong. This was a tough, tough call. 
But as well as he knew what he wanted to do, he also knew that God's law says in Exodus 20 and verse 12, honor your father and your mother. And a most amazing thing happens at this place at verse 51. We read very simply, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. This word translated obedient is not referring simply to the fact that he returned to Nazareth. But it's given to us in a Greek tense that indicates that he chose to continue submitting to his parents' will. There was apparently not an understanding on their part to release him to what he so wanted to do, but he continued to submit to what they asked him to do. His heart had to nearly break as he descended from Jerusalem and began his way northward to Nazareth. He was right to want to stay But Jesus chose to honor his parents. And I don't think it is a mistake what comes next in the text at verse 52 when it reads that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, in my scenarios, in putting all of this together, there's a lot of freedom to understand. We don't know all that there is to know. And I don't mean to draw a direct connection between my illustrations of young adults and their parents' will. I just mean to draw attention to what it meant to Jesus to do what had to be so hard for him in a place where his parents were in fact wrong at a certain level. And putting it together with the earlier scene, we have quite a contrast, don't we? We witness in these narratives two contrasting scenes. Eli's sons had no right to resist their father's authority, but they did so anyway. Jesus had every right to disregard his parents' will on one level, but he did not. In the first account, we witness the way of rebellion ending in divine discipline. And in the latter account, we witness the way of submission ending in favor with God and man. Although he was God, Jesus chose to submit to his parents' authority. I have no motivation and I have no strength to say anything further to our children except that it's based on that point. Jesus submitted to his parents. That has a world of truth in it. He does so because submitting to his parents' authority was morally right. Obedience to one's parents corresponds to the nature and to the will of God. If you get out of sync with that program, you are out of sync with God, and Jesus teaches us that. We see it in his example, and we see this in the direct address of the Apostle Paul in his classic appeal to children in the Ephesian assembly. Let's concentrate here, in light of these two scenes, on what God says to children. Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 1. We notice here, first of all, that God directly addresses children. Moving from the example of Jesus Christ, we come to the direct address and to the moral imperative. And here it is in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. We notice here that God directly addresses children. God does not talk about you here, children. He talks to you. This means that God views you as a responsible member in this assembly. 
as he addresses the children in the assembly of Ephesus. He has given you a specific job to do, and that job is to obey your parents and to honor them. Those of you who are children, you live at home with mom and dad, and there is a requirement of responsibility that you have. I think I probably know a little bit about how you filtered the last couple of weeks, perhaps, and particularly those of you that are in the teenage years. You're listening to the exhortations to Christian husbands and dads to lead their homes in a godly and loving way. And you've heard the exhortations to mothers to submit to their husband's leadership with a quiet and gentle spirit and to be winsome and supportive of their husband's guidance. And I would suspect that some of you found a few holes in your parents' follow-through. Am I right? He's, you, you, with 2020 vision, you say, you know, Dad doesn't really pull that off very well on this point. And with 2020 vision, you say, Mom, same thing. I can see there's places that my parents aren't perfect. I mean, it's one of the horrifying realizations as a teenager if you don't get there a long time before. You realize these, this, these people got some weaknesses. And I don't know exactly what went through your head, but perhaps there's a few that are even irritated with Mom and Dad and their follow-through why they can't figure it out and why they can't see what God's calling them to do. But you know, now the guns are pointed at you, so to speak. You realize your mom and dad struggle to do what God wants them to do. And then you come to this call and you realize it is hard. Children, obey your parents and honor your parents. There's not a one of you that finds that always easy. It's a hard relational struggle. But God calls you to submit to your parents' authority. This is the moral imperative. Husbands, love your wives. That proves tough at times. Wives, submit to your husbands. That proves difficult. Children, obey and honor your parents. That proves equally difficult. We realize this. God realizes this, but this is your calling from Him. He looks you in the eye as the Scriptures are read, and He says, children, you are to obey and to honor your parents. You are to obey them, the text says, in the Lord. I think the meaning is that you are to obey your parents because you are in the Lord. You have come to saving faith in Christ. This fits the context of the book. We have been created as a new man. We're not to live the way this world lives. The world finds it very easy, the flesh finds it very easy to dishonor parents and to disobey parents. That's very natural. But God has called you in Christ to be a new creature. In fact, you are created as a new creature. And He calls you to live differently, to live in moral light, not in moral darkness. And so He says to your father, who doesn't find it natural to be loving at all times and to lead in a godly way, He calls him to do what's not natural. He calls your mother to do what is not natural. And He calls you to do what will not always come easily. He calls you out of the spiritual darkness and confusion such as Eli's sons were in and he intends for you to produce righteousness with your deeds. And chief in that call for you is a call to obey and to honor your parents. Why does God issue this call? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. 
You are one with Christ. Obey your parents in the Lord. Why? Because they're always right. Is that what it says? It is because this is right. Not that they are always right, but because this is right. Not because you happen to agree with them, but because it is right. Children are to obey their parents because such behavior corresponds to the nature and the creative purposes of God, as Jesus illustrated to us when he left Jerusalem at age 12. It is what the new humanity, united in faith to Jesus Christ, does. It's the new call. Obey your parents. Second idea, a parallel idea, but perhaps bringing out a different nuance, is honor your parents. God does not want you to simply do what your parents say. He wants you children to obey them with respect. To honor your parents is to think highly of them, to respect and to esteem them, to treat them with dignity. Again, the objections can rise. You don't understand my parents. You don't understand how hard that is. How do I respect somebody that's not always respectable? Just think. It's the same thing a husband says. How do I love a wife who won't submit? Same thing a wife says. How do I submit to a husband who won't lead lovingly? It's the same thing. It's the same world. It doesn't give an excuse to us. It is a hard call. But it is a call for you to look at your parents in the right way and to work in your own mind at having a right attitude toward them. You choose by the grace of God to reverence them and respect them and to treat them as your parents. This command, as we find here, is the first with a promise. That is the first commandment in the law of Moses that presents a clear promise to those who follow it. There will be other promises that come later in the writings of Moses. But the point is this is very important, and it is a path of blessing. It is a path of blessing to obey and to honor your parents. And I think there is something of an echo here of Luke chapter 2 in verse 52. Jesus grew in stature, in wisdom, in favor with God, in favor with man. There was the blessing of God upon Jesus' life. And children, you can know this, it's right to obey your parents. In fact, it is the first commandment that was given with a promise. There's blessing that is attached to doing your job in the relationship. So that you will live long on the earth, that is more applicable to the ancient context and to the old covenant relationship between God and Israel it's not a hard and fast promise, obviously, that you're going to live past 70 if you obey your parents. Jesus didn't. But the idea of it is that there is a blessing that comes. There is a fruitfulness of life that comes as you learn to obey your father and mother with reverence. Let me say this, those of you who are living with your parents, those of you who are responsible to them, Children, the true test of maturity is not disobeying your parents because you realize they're wrong. The true test of maturity is obeying your parents because you love God. And sometimes even do it when they aren't right and when they're unreasonable. I'm not saying that if they would call you to go rob a bank to help out with the family finances that you obey them then. 
I'm saying here, though, that you obey them at times when they're wrong in the sense that what they're asking you may not be exactly fair. What they're asking you may not even be particularly wise. And you may see that you have a better idea than what they're asking you to do. It's not really wise. It's not really fair. But they've called you to do it. Maturity is doing it with a right spirit. And that's as hard as it is for a husband to love his wife when she's unlovely and for a wife to submit to her husband when he is unfair and does not lead as he should. You have as much of a responsibility as your moms and dads, and God expects you to follow through. In fact, he will give you the grace to do so. It is a hard call. We need the grace of God. You need the grace of God in your life to obey your parents immediately and with a good spirit, doing at what they ask you to do with joy in your heart. You will need God for that. And if you are pursuing a pattern of disobedience to your parents and disrespect of your parents, your problem is not ultimately with mom and dad. Your problem ultimately is with God. You need to see your sin for what it is. It's not because you got such bad parents. That's not what the struggle really is all about. The struggle is that you don't find it natural to obey God. Just try it. I hope you're trying it all the time, but let me just throw out that challenge to you. Try it. Try to obey your parents immediately and with a good spirit, even when you don't agree. That's a spiritual struggle, and it's real. But we need to see our sin for what it is. It is an unwillingness to submit to God's established structure of authority in the home. And children who fail here, hear me, listen carefully. I'm drawing these parallels between your dad's job, your mom's job, and your job for a very specific reason. Because children who disobey and dishonor mom and dad walk into a very difficult world when they get married because they are bent against submission to authority. What I mean is, if you struggle to obey and to honor mom and dad, you are going to struggle as a husband or a wife. You're going to find it particularly difficult to follow through on God's will. I know parents can be exasperating. You want to be free. You want to do your thing. You want to go your way. And you think, I'm old enough. I'm mature enough. I understand how life works. Why do they treat me like I'm a child? I realize these concerns, but the answer is never to trash God's Word and to walk around it. And if you establish a pattern where you say no to God when it comes to submitting to your parents, you are pre-programmed to say no to God when it comes to being a husband or a wife. Now the grace of God is sufficient, but you should never bank on getting out of sin. You should just get out of it. And you know, I speak to adults here as well. Some of you, this is your problem. You lived in rebellion against your mom and dad. You did not respect them. You did not obey them. And you walked into a marriage and thought everything was going to be just perfect. And you found out that it's not. 
And perhaps as God would bring that conviction, I think of no individual person here particularly, but as God would bring that conviction, that may well be the struggle in your relationship between husband and wife. You haven't learned to submit to God when God calls you to do something hard. You're used to doing your thing your way. And you live in a particularly messed up culture when it comes to that. Self-empowerment and self-autonomy is so important in our day. And when that self-importance gets into the relationship that we have with our parents, it can get us oriented in the wrong direction, and it can really mess up relationships between husbands and wives. So I call those of you who are adults to consider that truth and to know that maybe this pattern of trouble is entrenched in far more than you thought, and to go back to the root and to bring yourself to a place of repentance and submission before God and His authority. This is what the battle's about, is our learning to know His Word and to submit to it, even when it's hard. For those that are children, please understand that a serious spiritual battle is going on when your mom and dad ask you to do something, when they seek to give leadership. This is not a matter of how stupid your parents are. Forgive the term. That's not it. You're thinking in the wrong way if you think they just don't give me enough freedom. They just don't understand me. My parents are just messed up when it comes to what they expect of their kids. That is not the problem. We're not saying your parents are perfect, not saying that they're ideal, but that's not the problem. The problem is that this is a spiritual battle. You are naturally bent to not do what mom and dad want you to do. Or if you do it, to do it with a crabby heart, a crabby spirit. So the thoughts may be running through your mind from time to time. They are wrong. In fact, I'm old enough to make my own decisions. I don't need my parents telling me what to do. They're reducing my options and cramping my style and lowering my horizons, and they're basically in the way. You need to understand that those words come not from God, but from Satan. You're in a spiritual battle, and the only call is to draw on the strength and the grace of God. In fact, as those thoughts of rebellion and those thoughts of disobedience overwhelm you, it is very important that you come to God in repentance and that you are careful to know that you belong to Him as His child. He has come to redeem us from this way of thinking that I must have my way. He's come to save us from that. And let me tell you, these days under mom and dad's roof are going to blow by really fast. They don't seem like it right now, but they're going to blow by really fast. And it is important that you win this battle. This battle with the flesh, this battle with the natural orientation to seek self-autonomy, you've got to win this battle because you will be paying the price for losing it the rest of your life in some respect. Just remember this, that Jesus was God. 
He created the universe. He never sinned. And yet he chose to submit his will to the will of his parents because it was the right thing to do, even though they were missing some things. I say to our children, don't hear my word just because this is my idea of a way of keeping things under wraps and keeping control in homes. Don't think of it that way. I say to you and commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ. I say to you, follow him. Do what he did. Trust God and he'll lead you in good paths for his name's sake. Let's pray and seek his face as we consider these words of exhortation. Our Father, I pray for our children. I lift them up before you in prayer and I plead with you that you will work in their hearts. I ask God for my own children, for the children of this assembly, please help them to leave behind the things that we do wrong. Help them to find new patterns and new ways that discard whatever is twisted and wrong in our thinking and in our way of parenting. I pray that they'll move beyond us and go higher. But having prayed that, Father, I ask as well that they will face this spiritual battle and know that every time they want to rebel and every time they want to disobey and every time that they consider and entertain thoughts that are dishonoring to their parents, may they know that that is a spiritual battle. That it's a place where the demonic realm shrieks with glee. I pray that you'll teach them of this battle and that you'll help them to know in these few short days that they are setting down a way of life for the future. I pray for them. I pray for their parents. God, we need your help not to be influenced by a world that constantly mutes the call to obedience with honor, that is constantly shaving off the rough edges of this glorious call and turning what is a brilliant diamond into a piece of sand. God, I pray that you'll help us not to be influenced by this world, but to think clearly about your call upon our lives. I ask God that we would give our all to guide our children and to establish an expectation that is appropriate but an expectation of obedience with honor. Help us as parents to not cave in to the world around, but to know that we are called to train our children in morality, in obedience to your word. We pray for, our, for help. And I pray for any young person, any adult who is here, who is walking in rebellion to you, our Father, or for any who knows you not in a personal way. I pray, God, that this would be a day of repentance and returning to the right path. I ask, God, that you will lead us, that you will teach us, that you will allow us to make progress in our walk with you. And should I be praying and believe, in fact, that I probably am for the heart 
of someone or some who are gathered here today. I pray, God, that by your Spirit you would bring conviction, that you would hold your people on the path of righteousness and help us to engage the spiritual battle. Teach us what it means to submit to your will. Not because we want to always, not because we always think that everything is the way we want it to be, but because it is right. May we put your will foremost in our experience and in our affections. I pray this with all of my heart, that you will do a work of grace in the hearts of your people today. Through Jesus, I pray. Amen.